Hello, friends. Welcome back to the show. My guest today is Carl Benjamin. He's the YouTuber formerly known as Sargon of Akkad, a political commentator and host of the Lotus Eaters podcast. Every year, we don't think that the world can get any weirder. And then every year, reality manages to exceed our expectations. I had to get Carl back on to try and make sense of just what's happening. Expect to learn Carl's thoughts on Jordan Peterson getting called out by Ethan Klein and Hassan Piker how society has lied to young girls, whether the Pope should have told pet owners that they're selfish, what Carl predicts for the future of mainstream media, why family values are under attack, and much more. In case you missed it, next Jordan Peterson interview is coming in two weeks' time. I'm flying out to Texas with video guy Dean, and we are recording in person with Jordan. And the only way that you can make sure you will not miss that episode when it goes up is by pressing subscribe. So take your thumbs for a walk and press the subscribe button on wherever it is that you are listening. Plus, it makes me very happy indeed, and it supports the show at no extra cost to yourself. I thank you. Tell me if this sounds familiar. Your business gets to a certain size and the cracks start to emerge. Things that you used to do in a day are taking a week. You're drowning so much, you've now promoted your dog from company mascot to customer service representative. If this is you, you should know these three numbers. 37,025 and 1. 37,000 is the number of businesses that have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. 25, that is the 25th year anniversary of NetSuite. 25 years of helping businesses to do more with less, close their books in days, not weeks, and drive down costs. And one, because your business is one of a kind. So you get a customized solution for all of your KPIs in one efficient system. With one source of truth, manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. Everything you need to grow all in one place. Right now, download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance absolutely free at netsuite.com slash modern. That's netsuite.com slash modern to get your own KPI checklist today. This episode is brought to you by Crafted London. Finding men's jewellery that doesn't suck is very difficult and Crafted London have nailed it. They're the number one men's jewellery company worldwide. They're sweatproof, waterproof, heatproof, and gym-proof. They've got custom designs in gold and silver, necklaces, chains, pendants, bracelets, rings, and earrings. If you've seen me on any of the big cinema episodes on YouTube wearing a necklace, it will always be from Crafted. I absolutely love it. It works with formal wear, casual wear, whether it's daytime or nighttime. All of the pieces are super high quality. The designs are great, and uh, I love them. That's It's all I wear. Also, they have an unlimited lifetime guarantee so if your piece breaks for any reason at any point during the entire life of the product they will give you a new one for free get a 15 percent discount site-wide on everything by going to bit.ly slash cd wisdom and using the code mw15 at checkout that's bit.ly slash letter c letter d wisdom and mw15 at checkout this episode is brought to you by AG1. AG1 is a daily foundational nutrition supplement that supports whole body health. Even with the best diet in the world, it is hard to make sure that you get everything that you need. And through a science-driven formulation of vitamins, probiotics, and whole food sourced nutrients, AG1 delivers comprehensive support for the brain, gut, and immune system. This is why Joe Rogan and Lex Friedman and Dr. Andrew Huberman and Tim Ferriss are all massive fans. They have tried every other product out there like I have, and this is by far the best one available. Since 2010, AG1 have improved the formula 52 times in the pursuit of making the best foundational nutrition supplement possible through high quality ingredients and rigorous standards. 
Also, there's a 90-day money-back guarantee, so you can buy it and try it for 89 days. And if you don't like it, they'll just give you your money back. Head to drinkag1.com slash modernwisdom for that 90-day money-back guarantee, a year's free supply, vitamin D, five free travel packs, and more. That's drinkag1.com slash modernwisdom. But now, please give it up for Carl Benjamin. Carlos, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. I am very happy to see how well you're doing with Lotus Eaters at the moment, man. It's really impressive. The team's massive. It's huge, isn't it? It's yeah. mad. It's like 13 people in the office now. We're waiting for the next in the office next to us is the uh, the transport police that you saw when you came down. We're waiting for them to leave so we can expand into their office because they've got a huge office and we're just going to essentially just take it over. So I'm I'm looking forward to it. Get another get another set. So what does it feel like going from being just some blokey YouTuber to now you know a proper company media team researcher? Yeah, it's shit. it's exciting, right? Uh, like because before I could feel myself getting wearied by right now I'm going to have to read these things and do this and the, the you know you had to do all the back end stuff and it was just tiring. And, it, you know, it sapped the motivation to do the things, you know, but now we've got like, you know, two people who do the, the video production and then we've got other people who are doing other things. And so I and it's lots of other, you know, because we're all in the same office and I've been very insistent we work in the office. Uh, you get lots of different ideas being thrown into the sort of the ring. And, and it's not just me having to think of everything myself and have to do everything myself. And so it makes it a completely different in, environment. And the office is really chill place and everyone seems to have a good time there as well and so everyone's being very creative with what they're doing it's turning into quite the little think tank uh, i'm very very happy with it and it's 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 definitely a good idea and i'm so i, I knew it would be i had this instinct was like yeah that would probably be a good thing to have uh, and it would be nice to be able to bring other people in to do stuff and i, I i'm glad that that was correct a good instinct yeah man it doesn't surprise me i went down the atmosphere is cool i mean you've got your own servers and oh, shit yeah. in there as well you're as yeah, yeah, protected really as you can get it's um you know what you guys do is the closest thing i think we've got in the uk to the daily wire and that's one hell of a fucking operation yeah the, i mean we're nowhere near the scale of the daily wire but um you know we get something like seven or eight million views a month on our YouTube channel. Um, we, you know, 200,000 on the website, which is not that bad, actually. Speaking of YouTube dramas and people that are worried about losing their business, what's your thoughts on Ethan Klein's recent spat with Jordan Peterson? I think that what we're witnessing is the inevitable radicalization of Ethan Klein because of his Twitter usage. Uh, Ethan obviously used to be a sort of anti-social justice uh, commentator. He used to mock all of this and little by little, and I think it's because of the natural environment of Twitter having purged so many conservatives and suppressing conservative viewpoints that essentially it just makes it seem like the, the only and most sensible and common 
viewpoint is that of the far left. I mean, it's written in Twitter's terms of service that you can't misgender people and things like this. And there are so many, the, the, the political environment is so skewed on the platform that it becomes a sort of water in which you swim. And I don't think Ethan Klein is the smartest person in the world. And so I don't think he recognizes that. And I mean, take, for example, the way that he disavowed Jordan Peterson. He was like, you did something transphobic. You said something, you, this, you said that. And essentially it was just a list of crimes against progressivism. But I mean, that's the same as an imam coming to me and saying, well, you've eaten bacon, you've had, you've drunk alcohol, you've fornicated before marriage. I'm like, okay, but I'm not Muslim. You know, these are not my standards. I don't, I don't agree that these are things I should care about. And Ethan Klein has adopted them unthinkingly because other people on Twitter, these are, these are the things that the big Twitter, you know, viral Twitter threads and, and tweets, um, highlight. And so it's, it's put it into his mind that these are important things. But are they important things or is there something more important in Ethan's life, like his wife and children, perhaps, you know, rather than a very tiny fringe minority of which he probably knows very few people. But this is this is the thing. This is the problem with Twitter. And so and you can see this this dramatic leftward shift in his content. And now he's hosting a podcast with a guy called Hassan Piker. For anyone who doesn't know, he's a he's a literal communist and the kind of communist that one would call a tanky. Uh, What's he, that? He, uh, he, he he thinks the Soviet Union was a good idea and that America deserved 9-11. Uh, and explicitly. so it, he, he explicitly said America deserved 9-11, yes. Wow. He had to go. He, he's the nephew of Cenk Uger of the Young Turks. And he was working at the Young Turks at the time. It was a couple of years ago. And he had to go on the Young Turks and, with his uncle and essentially be told he had to disavow this position. He can't say that America deserved 9-11. And the thing is, he refused to do so, and now he's no longer at the Young Turks. Because even Cenk, who obviously hates America himself, was like, look, we can't just say that. You know, you can't just say, you know, we're Americans, we're in America. We're not going to say that America deserved the worst terror attack has ever experienced. Uh, but Hassan, for some reason, thinks the ISIS position is, uh, the, the jihadi position is more legitimate than the American position. And because Ethan's got him on a podcast now. Yeah, it's called Leftovers, which is a really stupid name, but then they're not very bright people. But the th the interesting thing about this is that Hassan looks like the smart guy next to Ethan. On this. <laughs> but the best part, though, the best part, even though he's a literal communist and Ethan is basically a communist now himself, uh, the best part about it is their phenomenal success. Uh, their set costs $3 million. And in the middle, like uh, between the segments of their thing, I watched an episode of it, and they, they have to do like, three adverts of uh you know for buy this product and you'll grow i don't know some sort of anti-capitalist chest hair or whatever it is they sell but it's the most hyper capitalist thing in the world and you can see during the shilling hassan's face he just looks like he's dying inside he's just like this just isn't worth the money pay the setback. exactly you got to pay for it all got to got to pay for that three million dollar mansion that he lives in and uh, so by promoting communism, they're literally being as capitalist as possible and dying in, on the inside. And I, I kind of love to watch it. I kind of love because I've, I've never done a shill. I've never promoted a product. I've never uh, had any kind of corporate contract or anything like that. And I do any, anything I do, I do on a gentleman's agreement because I think that's there's something important there, right? Because it's about not just you are going to be forced to keep your word, but it's about the desire to keep your word. It shows goodwill and good faith in what you do. Uh, and so that I think that there's something there, but um, 
but the fact that I've never had to do the shill, and I'm pro-capitalism, and these communists who are constantly raging about late stage capitalism are the ones shilling, shilling their hearts out. It's there's there's just a beautiful irony. So is Ethan? Um, are you thinking that Ethan's sort of been passively peer pressured in just based on what he sees on Twitter? I don't think it's peer pressure. I just think that Ethan is not really a very philosophically minded guy. And these people, the, the, the ideology itself and the people who are the authors of the main strains of thought within the ideology are very, very smart. And what they've done for the last 50, 60 years, probably since, since, uh, the, since post-war, uh, Europe, uh, the, the time of post-war Europe, um, they've, established that look the way the things are working in the united states is not going to bring about communism and therefore we need to undermine this and deliberately engage in what uh, communist antonio gramsci called a war of position so we can see that the society is a very powerful society it's not going to be overthrown in a revolution like Lenin did against the provisional government. Uh, and so what, what they need to do is wear away the society in order to open up the possibility of going towards communism. And so for the past, I mean, probably, probably nearly 100 years now, that they've been creating memes, right? They, they've been working on ways of cracking open the contradictions or the um, inconsistencies within our philosophy as the sort of like classically liberal uh, enlightenment west and trying to break it apart slowly but surely just as if you know you've got this you've seen the you've seen the um the videos the viral videos you see on facebook of like some guy in india or something he's got this giant stone and he's got like just a couple of metal um uh, chisels and and a hammer and he puts a couple of them in and then crack the whole thing splits open right it's that kind of effect that they're going for they're like right we, there's a there's a, a contradiction here there's a, an inconsistency here there's something that's just not filled out here if we just hammer on these bits hard enough the whole thing starts breaking apart and that's what they've been doing to us and they've been doing it very consciously they know that they're doing this and they want to do it because frankly they think that communism is where we should all be even though there's never been a good example of communism and never will be. Um, but it's it's kind of like the unfinished puzzle of the Enlightenment. You know, the smart people look at it and think, I can solve this. This will fix all of our problems. But it's nonsense. Um, but yeah, so Ethan is essentially um, the victim of that process. Yeah, I was, I was going to say, because I'm always skeptical about the people that are whatever at the coalface of this. I'm so non-conspiratorial with the way that I think. Like the fact that Ethan Klein could be co-opted into some grand uh, attempt to try and take down the West just doesn't seem realistic. But it what it seems like what you're saying is that he's sort of a a willing, ignorant participant, like a useful idiot. The problem is, uh, it's not a conspiracy. Um, it's all out in the open, and I can just tell you the names of the people who are doing it and the books. In fact, in fact, do I have them on my desk? Yeah, there we go. So. I mean, it begins with people like the Frankfurt School, which Theodore Adorno, uh, Horkheimer, Marcuse, and a bunch of others. Um, this is Dialectic of Enlightenment, where they're literally trying to figure out well, what's gone wrong, why haven't we achieved communism, why is capitalism won? Uh, and then this, this is what's called critical theory. This moves into uh, what we now know as critical race theory. And then that's people, it begins with people like Derek Bell. Um, uh, let me let me get out my uh, my notes actually because right so you've got Derek Bell you've got Alan Friedman you've got Richard Delgado Mari Matsuda um, obviously Kimberly Crenshaw Harlan Dalton Anthony Cook 
you can look all of these people up. I don't have the book with me. It's at work. You know, it's in the office. Uh, otherwise, I'd be able to bring up that huge book. It's just called Critical Race Theory, The Key Writings of Form the Movement. It was edited and curated by Kimberly Crenshaw, and she's got a bunch of essays in here. And But a, a bunch of the essays that she's written uh, in Harvard Law School, this was, uh, back in 1987 and 1989, I think it was, uh, that um, she expressly says this. But uh, that, I mean, and in various other writings of critical race theory, you can find this. For example, she's got an essay called Race, Reform and Retrenchment, Transformation, Legitimation and Anti-Discrimination Law. And this is where she says, and I quote, uh, she wants Gramsci to literally, uh, she wants to use the Gramscian tactics to begin withering away our society uh, and therefore she says she wants to adopt a legal she the problem is that a legal strategy will not include redistribution redistribution of wealth right that's what she thinks and so you can see exactly it is a she's a communist she is interested in achieving communism and she is a, in the legal arena the legal academia and she can't get the redistribution of wealth that she's looking for through american law because American law is, of course, based on classical liberalism, which is fundamentally based on the right to own property. Communism, of course, is that nobody owns property. So this is never going to happen. There's no justification for it. And so what she does is realize, well, if we can es essentially expand the definition of the words, because one of the things she points out is that, look, if I just come in and say, right, we need a revolution, then all of the, all of the, the systems that are just carrying along happily, and she tries to put that down, they're just going to bash her out of the way and say, Pfft. We're not having a revolution. Get out of here. You know, we, we, we've got a constitution, for example. But then she realizes, well, what we need to do, and she says, literally, it need, she says this, quote, demands for change that do not reflect the institutional logic will probably be ineffective, which is true. Uh, this is the demand for revolution. Pff, not going to work. And so what she does essentially slides into the institutional logic and expands the definition of the words that they're using in order to encompass their antonym. Now, for example, she, in this particular essay, uses the example of racism. Racism, she, she gives two definitions, the expansive and restrictive views of racism. What? Who consents to this? Who agrees that there are two definitions of racism? I don't agree with that. Racism, in my opinion, is the conscious act of discriminating against someone because of their race, because you do not like the, their race. But that's not her definition. Her definition is an outcome that has a that can be categorized based on races that shows some kind of difference. I don't agree that's racism. But if she redefines it to be that, and then in proliferates this view of what racism is, which is now a systemic structural, everything around us is complicit in the average white family having more wealth than the average black family, then suddenly our entire society becomes racist. And now you can see how the critical race theorists are saying, well, we live in a giant racist society. It's like, okay, but you can never point to an act of racial discrimination, but they don't care they because don't need we're not to. using, sorry? They don't need to because they've concept creeped it and expanded it out yeah precisely so is it is it the case with jordan is he tainting the purity of ethan when you look at his back catalog yes uh without a doubt <laughs> um the the and notice how this came unprovoked from ethan klein as well right so just to just to quickly finish this off basically ethan has found himself just f f it's he's in this river right that's been redirected 
to to the critical race theory view of things, the woke view of things. Uh, sorry, I've got a massive spot there because the other day I was reading something and I had a spot and I just kept scratching it and it looks gross. <laughs> and I'm I'm trying not to scratch it now. Um, Ethan Ethan is is just in the river of wokeness. Wokeness is critical race theory. That's what it all comes from. And again, it, it, Kimberly Crenshaw is basically the chief strategist of this because in her essays she was writing, well, look. It's not just uh, we can do this for black people and black women. Uh, and she coined the term intersectionality because she was writing an essay about the intersection of how the the way that American civil rights worked at the time, this was back in the 90s or the 80s, uh, is that they would recognize oppression because you're a black or because you're a woman, but they didn't insect into black women. And if you think about it, this was inevitable that this would come about. You know, if, if you if you envisage, envisage a world that you know, blacks are oppressed or women are oppressed, uh, then why couldn't you have black women being oppressed, you know, doubly oppressed? You know, there's no no reason that this logic wasn't going to come about at some point. And Kimberly Crenshaw was the first one to identify it, coin the term intersectionality. And from this, she even says, well, we can do this with the gay community, with the trans community. And this is back in the 80s and 90s, she's saying this. So you can see how long these ideas have been on the pot for, on the boil. Right. And it's just it's not just her, of course, it's, it's dozens and dozens of different you know, left wing academics, communist academics. Because they're looking to destroy this, what they call the patriarchy, the, the inherited structures of classical liberal society in the West. Because these are the things, as Gramsci says, are preventing the communist revolution. And they're not wrong. Like They're not wrong that the fact that we've got families and business owners and properties and governments and rules and laws. Yeah, these are all preventing a communist revolution. That's true. That's why we have them. We don't want a communist revolution. We want a prosperous society where we can feel safe and secure and we know what's going to happen tomorrow. And we've, you know, I'm going to wake up and my car's going to be in the driveway and things like this because I own it. You know, that's much more preferable than no one owning anything and the state having total domination over everything we have, uh, which is even not even the end of what they're aiming for in communism. But the, the point is, this is the entire basis of woke philosophy. And Ethan is the victim of the memes that the mimetic warfare they've been engaging in. So what they're doing is saying, well, look, trans rights, Ethan. He's like, well, I mean, they're human beings. Of course they have rights. You know, everyone has rights. But what's a trans right? Why would you bring that up? Why wouldn't you just say human right? It's exactly, it should be exactly the same thing, should it not? Except a trans right is something new now. You know, it's something different. There are apparently rights that trans people have that I don't have for example, uh, which is implicit in the construction of the phrase trans rights. And Ethan, you know, being a bumbling idiot, he's just like, well, of course, I don't know. You know. Of course, I believe in this. But once you start going, he's put like a foot in the river, you know, and then, oh, you know, affirmations and people retweeting and, and the general sort of radicalizing effect of Twitter, getting in bed with other leftists who then take him down the sort of mimetic paths that they bring you on. Uh, and now he's like, and notice that he just comes out and just out of nowhere. No one was saying, you know, Ethan, you have to disavow Jordan Peterson. No one was saying it. This, this is an old interview. But he just came out and was like, I'm going to take down that Jordan Peterson interview. It's like, okay, no one's making you do that, Ethan. But you've chosen to do it because you've accepted a series of premises that have led you to the conclusion that actually you used to be a terrible person. And it's like, that's weird because it looks to me and all the world like you're the terrible person now. But like Ethan used to do decent things. He used to actually help people. He used to he used to do a bit of investigative journalism occasionally. And he used to entertain people and just, you know, be an entertainer. He wasn't the active piece of shit that he has become. Like you can see this in his 
like betrayal and deception of Steven Crowder. It was just a scummy thing to do. Absolutely scummy. And the way he's going after Joe Rogan, the way he's going after John Peterson, people that I would consider to be people of high moral character, you know, people I've both met, I've, I've had conversations with them. They did not seem in any way deceptive. They seem to exhibit virtue in their daily lives. They have millions of adoring fans because of their virtues. And you've got this fat communist idiots going, they're bad people. Shut up, Ethan. You're the useful idiot of a bunch of people who are trying to overthrow the West, frankly. Have you heard of the purity spiral? Do you know what that mm-hmm. is? Yes, yeah, so I mm-hmm. only learned about that this week. So the situation... Really? Yeah, I, I, well, it makes sense. Like, I understand the circular firing squad sort mm. of analogy. But, yeah, the fact that over time ideological groups require the uh, binding of an in-group to be over the mutual hatred of an out-group. And the easiest way to do that is to continually shave off little elements that mm. allow one person to go out, well, look, we are now moral because we're standing on the shoulders of the people that are no longer moral. And yeah. um, that really fucking, that increasing sort of zealousness about ideologies explains so much. I love when uh, things piece together like that. And there's a, a so concept. one 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 thing I've been thinking about is the concept of ideology. Um, I mean, could you define an ideology? No. Define what ideology is? Me, no. Right? Exactly. And like most, and I'm not, I'm not. That's not a criticism either. Most people can't. I couldn't. You know. And I was, I was just sat there one day thinking about this. Why can't I define what ideology actually means? Because I mean, you go to the dictionary and get like a very basic definition. It's something it more than a belief structure, right? It's more than norms. Yeah. It's more than yeah. So what? What the the critical race theorists? There's um there's a chap called I think it's Alan Freeman's uh one of his essays. Let me just go through my notes. Sorry, I've got loads of notes uh, because they there's literally like forty essays in this giant tome of uh, all of their ideas. Right, but uh, they they've got like their own theories on what the world what the world is and how things mean. Uh, you know what what things are. Um. And one of them has a theory of ideology, and this is not the only person who has a theory of ideology. Um, but this this theory is that ideology is a series of contested ideas uh, that is a battleground for power games. You know, as in you're trying to assert one set of ideas over another, win a series of arguments, and essentially conquer the field. Uh, and this this was similar to a theory of ideology from a conservative philosopher called Michael Oakeshott, who said that it's a an interlaced, an interlocking uh, system uh, or you know, lattice of ideas that justify the seizure of power. And also that these are kind of a crib of a set of traditions. Um, and there's a, there's a bit of overlap there. So it's all right, okay, th- this is, it is interesting how the very notion that I have a series of thoughts and that justifies hurting people is just totally pervasive in society. Everyone thinks it. Like all of the left at the moment, they will do what they can to deplatform, to humiliate. And this is something that I can't stand watching. Beta left wing men trying to humiliate right wing women. It's like, oh, that's so feminist, you know. Uh, but because they think wrong, it's okay. And of course, you know, the platform anti fire attacking people like Andy No and whoever it is. But it's this constant war that they're engaged in. You know, this is the ideologists' war. They're eroding the power and the status and the position in society of anyone who opposes them. And the the circular firing squad is something that happens when they're in their own echo chambers. Now it's about status, you know, and how do you get status? Well, being the person who professes the most 
correct interpretation of the ideology this this lattice of contestable ideas you get that um, so to interject there you get that uh ever increasing requirement to adhere to the tribal norms in conservative circles as well though right in not in quite the same way um there are because the the problem is that often what we call conservative circles are actually not conservative they're actually uh whig circles or classical liberal they they are a set of ideologies themselves uh take for example the republicans in america uh they're not conservative they have an ideological agenda they're the product of a revolution you know a conservative is someone who is the inheritor of tradition uh, which is innately anti-revolutionary because of course you're continuing a long tradition that has been passed on to you with the expectation that you will maintain it look after it and pass it on to future generations and so you don't have an ideological agenda you're just looking at the real world and the way things are done and you act accordingly you don't really have like an agenda for the entire world you've got a particular thing in a particular place at a particular time and you are just preserving it for the next generation and making sure you're you sort of polishing it you know you're buffing it up but you don't have a series of ideas that can be contested and attacked based on someone else's rational thoughts like the british monarchy is a great example of this why do we have all this pomp and ceremony but you can't rationally justify it because it's the product of millions of people's inputs over thousands and thousands, uh, thousand years. And you can't explain it. You know, it's, it's, it's the, in- the inherited wisdom of generations upon generations of people. It's way more than one man could just sit down and be like, right. And so I'm going to explain why we do this. But we do it because, A, we know it works. It's lasted. So it must have some value. And it's, uh, it's an irrational thing it's a it's a prejudice that we have uh but it also has emotional resonance with us it matters you know this it makes us feel at home in our world when we see you know the the the, the pomp and ceremony of the monarchy right okay the world is properly ordered everything is as it should be we're going to watch the ceremony everyone will do their part because they're supposed to do the little part because you know 300 years ago someone fell over and it became a, a habit that now has fallen into the ceremony and stuff like that but you it, but it, it it creates a kind of um sort of emergent order right that no one person is in control of and no one person is designed the american republic isn't like that you know republicans aren't like that progressives aren't like that they have got a series of basically you know holy books that people have gone right and so we're going to do this 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 and this that 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 and that that and then boom we'll have the perfect system it's like okay that's one guy with one opinion maybe he's right but he's probably not let's be honest and uh you know the closest we've come to a decent version of that is the american republic every other example of this like you know the french uh, republics which now they're on the fifth one uh you know the soviet union china wherever they've turned into terrible terrible places that have made terrible terrible mistakes that have got millions of people killed um and so i'm i'm very skeptical of ideologists at this point you know, when some when a guy comes along and goes, I've got the ideas, and it's like, so, <laughs> so what? You know, I don't care. You know, I don't have to listen to them. I don't have to be bound by them, and you don't have any right to hurt me because you've got an idea. You know, you don't get to take things away from me. You don't get to persecute me. You don't get to gain control of the entire country or the entire world. In in many cases, is what they're aiming for, just because you have a set of ideas. You know, this is just you. This does not give you license over me so just go away 
you know that's basically what anyone can turn around and say to any of these people uh, and so this this is the difference it, like because it, i know what you mean in like american republican circles i know exactly what you mean but l- listen to the language that they're in- invoking when they do it it's all this kind of ideologist rhetoric of the constitution the founding fathers the ideological revolution that is the united states and i'm not even saying that's bad i support the ideological revolution of the united states but it's not conservative you know it's 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 classically liberal it's whig uh, which is fine. I'm awake, um, but uh, but it's not it's not the same thing. And it it's this this kind of murky uh, confusion in our thinking that I think has allowed the progressives to be you know sit back very very cunningly and be right. I can see how I can get you, and that's how they've come along. I think. I want to talk about this Paulina Poriskova lady, the 56 year old supermodel that dared to look her age. Do you see this? I did a video on it, yeah. Oh, right. Okay, yeah. So uh, Poritzkova was once the world's highest paid model, but as she hit her 50s, she says she was suddenly invisible. Now 56, she's leading a new wave of older women, taking their place in the spotlight and on the catwalk and flaunting it on Instagram in her bikini. What do you think of uh, Paulina Poritzkova, Carl? I think that nature is a very cruel mistress. To women, very much so. Yes to women uh she's she's not overly kind to men either to be honest but uh the we get the better end of the deal out of the two when we get older we do yeah yes when we get older but when we're young we don't you know it's quite rough actually shite yeah well we're, we're thrown into a world where we're competing with a bunch of men who have a bunch of advantages over us and there's no way of getting these advantages until a set period of time has passed <laughs> so you just yeah. sat there right so there's literally nothing you can do other than get your head down and get to work yeah. you know, that's all you can do as a man uh, but women have got a completely reverse dynamic and it's kind of unfortunate actually they're they're, they're in our society they're, they're, they're they they emerge into a society that doesn't warn them that this doesn't last forever. Their birth, as they, as they, they become a woman, 18 years old. And you can see all this, all the okay Cupid data and things like that. Women are most attractive to men, all men, at about 21 years old. Like every man will say 21-year-old is the most attractive woman. I've seen the same graph. I've seen the same graph that you're talking yeah. about. Yeah, it's hilarious. Whereas women will say, you know, it'll, the, man's, the, the most attractive men will be roughly their own age as they get older uh, and, and peak at about 40, 45. Um, and so men men have that advantage over women. So women are given a huge amount of social and sexual power in their youth that is just drained away as they age. And this is not fair, but it is a fact. And so this is what women should be, they should be using their time in their youth to find the the, the best man for them, the man they really want, uh, and get him into a long-term relationship, uh, preferably a marriage. So when they're in their 50s, they have the companion and they have earned the the status of being the wife of this man. You know, this is not, they're not going to be finding themselves on their own because at 56, men are not looking for a 56-year-old woman. Men who are eligible and who are looking for a partner do not consider 56-year-olds unless they're a significant amount older than 56. Well, the thing the thing that I saw from reading that article, um, this Paulina lady is upset because previously she would walk into a party and everybody would turn and look at her and she would be the showstopper. And now that's not happening anymore and younger girls are doing that. You know, The reverse is true. The guy at 18 that walks into a room no one gives a shit about, yeah. but at 
48 when he's the CEO of a company and he's flown in on a private jet or he's got other markers of status mm-hmm. or prestige or acclaim or whatever, then maybe people will. So mm-hmm. over time, the um, notoriety and value and prestige that society holds you in is going to change. Yes, that yeah. is that is true. The issue, the, the main issue that I saw with this is that the model was presuming that the thing which gave her value when she was younger should still be the thing which gives her value when she's older. And that yeah. that felt really tragic to me because I can see how I can see how a, a girl who enters the world of modeling, who continues to be in that world, who is told that her looks are her primary contribution mm-hmm. to the world. And this was a woman who I think had two or three children um, and had a husband up until only a couple of years ago and then got separated. Um, so... This is someone who who's had the opportunity to cultivate other parts of her life, other things that she feels she contributes mm-hmm. to the world in a way which genuinely makes her something that appreciates with time that doesn't depreciate with time. Mm-hmm. And the problem is that, and this is true for guys as well, I think anybody that gets to their 30s and is still primarily taking their, their main source of value to the world from the way that they look is they have invested their resources into a depreciating asset because over time that is going to wane. And what you mm-hmm. need to try and do is come up with grace, poise, interest, Gravitas. humor. Yeah, all of those things, right? These things are going to appreciate with time. These are, mm. these are the things that you can have when you're 70 and still crush a room with. You know, mm. you can have comedians, uh, you know, your granddad, you don't think about your, you're not bothered about your granddad walking into a room because he's like the best looking guy in the room, but he might mm. be the one that's got the most virtue or wisdom or insight yeah. or humor or balance or whatever it might be. And there's a lie that's sold from the media and from consumerist society mm. that the primary value that women have isn't even their beauty, it's their hotness. Mm-hmm. If you look at the sort of women that we see on TV, on Love Island, I'm aware that I'm shilling for this as well. Um, but the the girls that go on there, not that they're not always it's a part of your wisdom. Don't apologize for yeah, it. True. Uh, not that they're not always they're not ever beautiful, but they're often hotter than they are beautiful. Mm-hmm. They're being signaled off a very very immediate hotness as opposed to timeless beauty, mm. which I think because I mean you could you could be beautiful in a in a very conservative dress. You know, uh, but you can't be hot in a very conservative dress. Yeah. You know, that's what you're saying, right? Yeah. Um, but but you, you I, I think you, I think you're making a great point. And the, like, it's very rare for men to be able to leverage their attractiveness uh, to any significant degree. Like, you know, that's a very very small percentage of men who become like you know famous actors or something in their twenties and then get you know any woman in the world. That's Chris you know, Hemsworth that's probably, or the Leo Leo DiCaprio's of the world. Yeah. yeah, it's probably not going to be you, right? So what you you're probably about a five out of 10, like, you know, like me. Uh, and you know, most women are going to be about a five out of 10, but women are more attractive as they're young and grow less attractive as they get old. And men are less attractive as they're young and grow more attractive as they're old. And this is just the way that nature plays the game exactly as you were describing it. Um, but the, uh, and it is exactly, as you say, like society is not preparing women to learn that. I mean, I can't even imagine what it must've been like to be 21 years old and literally have the world at your feet. You know, and I think most men have no idea what that experience is going to be like, because I was nobody of any importance and nobody cared about, you know, me in any particular way, apart from my friends and family, of course, you know, no, I was not in any way impressive or important when I was 21 years old, unlike this model who was getting, you know, millions of dollars per contract and who was commanding the room and who was at the very top of society, you know, and so to just have that, you know, just, just slowly fade away until 
no one cares about me. It's like, well, yeah, but you essentially were given a gift when you were young and you didn't, as you say, cultivate anything else. You thought, well, I've got this one thing. I don't need to do anything else. Whereas I've had to have this slow, laborious and often depressing ascent to a position where people actually give a shit what I have to say, you know, and people actually care whether I'm, I'm, you know, I, I say this or that on the thing. And it's, it's a very privileged place to be, but I've worked really hard for it, you know, and it's, it's not something can just be taken away by, you know, my, my growing older, unless I go totally senile, of course, but then I think I've got other problems at that point. Um, you know, it's, it's something that, and I, I can, it's, a, it's this, this thing that I can continue to cultivate that will continue to get better. Whereas she's out of options now, you know, she can't do that. And we don't prepare women for this inevitability. It is inevitable that you will get old, you'll become saggy, you'll get wrinkly and you'll become infertile. And then men will not be interested in you. So if you base your success off the interest of the opposite sex, that's eventually going to stop. And you need to be prepared for that. And most, most through all of human history, every civilization knew this and accepted this as a part of the sort of teleology of being a woman. This is what's going to happen. So we, and we had social roles for women to fall into, you know, to grow into after the, the beauty had faded somewhat you know you'd be married you'd be a pillar of the community you'd be involved in some sort of social club or you know a charity you'd be doing something you and then you 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 go to a mother and then to a grandmother and so now you're you know as an older woman you still have plenty of value to your children and your grandchildren there are still people who care about you and don't get me wrong this other woman has children and will doubtless have grandchildren so she she at least still has that life path open but a lot of women these days are not having children but even even them, the even the conversation that she brings up there she doesn't say she doesn't mention them does she precisely no it's weird isn't it because you'd think she'd take solace in the fact that she at least has a family who love her you know but she's uh trying to gain the attention of men like she did when she was in her 20s it's like well, that that period of your life is over you need to come to terms with that because it's kind of embarrassing granny that you're posting bikini shots on instagram like what are you doing i don't want my grandmothers to be doing that i want them to have a bit of dignity and self-respect and to to grow into the role that nature has expected of you you know because you can't avoid it you know, as she's found out to her chagrin and you're you going know, to be but, you're going to be defeated by someone who is yep. 30 years younger than you now yep. which she complains about in the article there's no getting around it but she was more than happy to take the success of that when she was beating the 56 year olds when she was 21 yeah i you know i i'm very very sort of not cautious but I, it is it is sort of uh, cautious of trying to be sympathetic to the situation that women have got themselves to that place perhaps and they didn't know if she'd known when she was 21 that if i'd continue down this road when i'm 50 by the time that i'm 56 i'm going to be miserable she probably would have done things differently so partly you think well you know you're culpable to some extent but also nobody warned you and i think it is important to to try and have these warnings out there for women i i'm i'm actually a bit more sympathetic than that because i, I do think that you are a product of your environment to a great degree. And if you're in an environment that, that venerates youth and doesn't have any time or consideration for wisdom and age, then you end up in a position where you just don't have anyone point, putting that in your mind. You know, that's just not a thought that you ever have. And there's no reason for you to have had it, you know. Uh, and so it's it's kind of cruel, frankly, what I think our society does to women um, as they grow older. And you, you get now, you, you're getting now loads of millennial wine aunts 
who are getting into their 40s. And I, I do these segments on the podcast all the time because whenever, you know, in whatever Vogue or Bustle or whatever the women's magazine is, where it's, I'm 40 years old. I have three degrees. I earn $100,000 uh, a year. I've got two cats and I can't find a man. What's going on? Who told you that you would be able to find a man with those credentials? You know, yep. why would you think uh, in your 40s you'd start settling down and finding a, a husband and kids? It's, it's not good for either gender. No, no, here. Not it's not all. good for men. Not at all. It's not good for men because there is a, a group of career women who are chasing education, mm -hmm. employment, and status throughout their 20s and 30s, which means that they're unavailable. And then by the time that they do get there, most women don't want to be in a relationship with a man that earns less than them and is less yeah. uh, educated, which yeah. means that they've competed themselves out of their own dominance hierarchy because mm -hmm. there's no one above and across. The men that they're looking for are around their age, but the men that are around their age are looking for women that are 10, year young, 10 years younger than them. Uh, yeah, the, and, and also the dating pool is very narrow at that point. Yeah. You know, very, very narrow. And and it's it's more than that as well, though, because think about what they're doing in the process of coming up to that point where they're like, uh, you know, I, I can't find a man, and why isn't society paying attention? I And, and I, I hear the word invisible being used a lot by these women. Uh, this is a constant and uh, multiple times she uses it in that article and i've yep. seen it other in other places where it's like i'm invisible and it's like yeah you're like me i'm invisible like i just walk around and get on with my life i don't have like women like looking at me and you probably do but i i don't have women looking at me as i go past you know this is what life is like um but the but the the, the sort of like not necessarily the model, obviously, because she's not competing in an arena where men would also be competing. But the the forty year old wine aunt, who's the you know the deputy CEO of a company or something, her working in the corporate world is her occupying a position that a man could have been occupying, and so she's knocking men a man down on that sort of social scale. And so when you've got millions of women in the workplace, all like being girl bosses. Well, you're generally enervating the status of men in society. And you think, okay, well, you know, men deserve it. I don't care. I'm a feminist. It's like, sure, sure, sure. Yeah. But that's my point. You're enervating the level of men in society for your own personal gain, getting to the pinnacle and then being like, I'm lonely. Where are all the good men at? Yeah. I'm lonely. Where are all the good men? I can't find a man. It's like, yeah, well, you were selfish. You, you didn't consider what men need to be attractive to you, let alone for their own self-esteem and for their own vitality and prosperity. You were just like me, 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 me. And then you're still me, 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 me. And yeah. now it's, and all these guys have just checked out of society. They're just, you know, playing their Xboxes, living in shared accommodation with each other until they're well into their late thirties, drinking beer every night and working crappy jobs. And they, they're fine, you know, because they actually don't need much to get along. But I think if you asked any of them, they would say, yeah, I would like a wife. You know, I would like a family. I would like kids. I would like a successful career. I would like to have the prestige of being the breadwinner in the household. You know, it's not that I'm saying women can't work or anything like that, but like be considerate. Where's the goodwill from either side? You know, and it seems to be the lack of goodwill on the part of the career woman has just ruined the way our civilization works and it's not good for the men it's not good for the women and the results of this are smacking us in the faces right now and there's nothing we can do about it now honestly man like the more that i think about this the more i feel like we might be totally fucked like it just feels like yeah. you know that meme yeah. of the dog in the house and the house is on fire and he's just smiling through this the beginning of the end this yeah. is fine like if men don't kill themselves 
They're exiting education and society and family life at the highest rates ever. Women are frantically pursuing careers only to discover that they're unable to find a partner that they're attracted to and then jump on meds at 40 years old. The highest uh, percentage, uh, the highest group uh, that use meds uh, are between white women between 40 and 45 years old. And then the people who want kids can't find a partner that does as well. Birth rates declining, faith in the leaders Mm -hmm. and the news organizations non-existent. And everyone's just about sufficiently sedated not to notice or care that it's going on. That's a precise and accurate summary of how the West has declined and will collapse, yes. Fuck. I know. It's tr- and do you know what's worse, right, is that the few that are in the generations that are coming up now are totally fucked by leftist ideology. Um, the way that women, young women, view men is evil. It is purely as a transaction, as in they are essentially prostitutes every single one and they don't even realize it and the young men what do you mean view women as trophies you know women are now just again they're not people they don't view each other as people the the thing a human being is a three-dimensional thing it's it's got a material component and then it's got an emotional component and a spiritual component you know like the the metaphysics we ascribe to what is a person and the thing that we consider, you know, you're not just Chris, you're, uh, you know, you're not just the body of Chris, you are, you know, a, a personality, you know, I'm considerate of you when I'm talking to you and things like this, you know, when you, when you message me on Facebook, like, Hey man, how's it going? You know, so <coughs> I don't just send you a link to my OnlyFans, right. And ask you to subscribe, but that's how a generation of women have been trained by feminists to view men in order not to be oppressed by the patriarchy, right. And so these women, I think, have been essentially made unable to love men as people, right? They don't really see them as people. They they view them as a kind of competitive competition, uh, like uh, uh, competitors on a playing field. And the young men don't know what to do. And so now they're just following their base instincts of I should try and have sex. I should try and see a woman naked, Uh, you know, and therefore that's flattening a woman down to merely her biological components. Now it's not even romance, you know. It's not about falling in love. It's about send nudes. Yeah, hookups. Well, it's it's, ob- it's objectification from men to women yeah. and commodification of uh, men from women. Like, yes. yeah, is yeah it, was it perfect. you that said um, in the same way that porn has skewed men's expectations of women, OnlyFans has skewed women's expectations of men. I've I cited it by you, uh, even if it wasn't. So it, it may well take have been, it because, but because uh, I, I totally agree with that statement. I may have said that um, because it's it's awful how OnlyFans has turned. It's commodified being a girlfriend, right? That's the thing. So everyone thinks, oh, you know, you're just getting nudes. It's just like porn. It's like it's not just like it's porn. emotional and intimacy. I've been, I've been watching a bunch of YouTube videos by women who do OnlyFans who explain what they're doing on OnlyFans. I've never used them. You know, God forbid. My wife would kill me. Um, but uh, so it, basically, it seems like it's sort of like a, an online artificial girlfriend service, yep. you know, and the yep. sort of romantic nude that you'd send to one another and sexy posts and stuff, they send to like, you know, 5,000 men or however many is. It's like, right, that's not good, is it? You know, that's, that's pretending to have an intimate relationship with thousands of different men. And it's not surprising that there have been a, recently a bunch of OnlyFans models who have been murdered by subscribers. No way. Fans. Yeah, no, no, we recently did a video. That, in fact, it should be out on podcast and uh, already by the time this goes up. Uh, it's not out yet, though. But um, yeah, we've got you know three examples in the last week where subscribers have murdered these people. And there was one guy who had gone to Florida, stalked an OnlyFans model, 
murdered her and then written on like the walls i shouldn't have come it's her fault for making me love her or something like that and stuff like this and it's just like look this is warped what it is to be in an romantic and sexual relationship like pretending that we can just commodify these things and that's all a human being needs is not true and that both both people on both sides can detach their emotions from the situation that the guy isn't going to feel anything more than well yeah. he knows that this is just messages he knows that this is just work and the but same as the the yeah precisely they yeah, can't switch they that off it's, they can't switch that emotional uh, situation exactly. off but but for the the sort of gen z woman men are merely a mode of transaction because they've been indoctrinated by feminists in their schools and just in the culture at large to view men as being part of an oppressive structure and they have to be on their guard against men. You know, men are here to take something from you. Men are dangerous to women. You know, you've got to, you've got to view them as a thing to get money from. Well, if they're the enemy, then defeating the enemy makes sense. But the other side of this is, man, I don't know. I, I wonder what it teaches women, not only the women that do OnlyFans, but even the women that know that other women do OnlyFans, what does it teach them about what their worth is? We've literally just said, if you enter the world and your primary source of value is your looks or your sex appeal, this is a depreciating asset and you need to be very, very careful. Um, this is the richest, I wouldn't like to guess, there is a huge swath of some of the richest people in the UK and in America that are women that are probably getting their money directly from taking their clothes off and sending photos to people that pay them for it. And that's what other women are thinking as well. So by osmosis almost there's these role models of women that are in a society that says girls you can be a girl boss too clap back don't settle for less be a boss bitch all of this stuff be a career woman Mm -hmm. and also some of the most successful career women that you know are the ones who are using the lowest form of female value to the world as their way to climb this dominance hierarchy like yeah. it's not good. I don't think it's good for women. I don't think it's good for men either. It's terrible for society in general. You know, it's it's again, it, it it's it's teaching women that men aren't important and unique things because, like the 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 root of every relationship, every relationship is unique, right? Every, and and no one else can have that relationship with you. Your relationship, my relationship to you, my relationship to my wife, my relationship with my sons, they'll never have that relationship ever again, right? You'll always have a different relationship with someone else. And relationships are like a chain, you know, or like a rope, you know. And if you don't, if you don't like keep it in good check, if you don't, you know, do the things that the other person appreciates, and if they don't reciprocate and do the things you appreciate, then the relationship fades and frays and ends up breaking, you know. And there can be other ways of breaking it, but like. It's it's something you have to nurture, something you have to take care of, and something that is what I think is the the genuine content of the human experience. And I think that this is why, if you go back a hundred years, people were so much poorer, but they were not on antidepressants. They weren't all depressed. They weren't all sad because they had their families, they had their friends, they had their social life. They had a reason to live. You know, oh, I've got to go to over to Mavis's house and and pick up her groceries for her, you know, and stuff like this. And you feel good about doing something good for someone else. Mavis will probably make you a cup of tea when you get there and you have a nice little chat and things like this. Like the, this, these these relationships are the genuine, the, the what makes life worth living. You know, ostracization used to be a punishment, you know, and now people are literally just ostracized on their phones thinking, God, I hope Twitter gives me some likes today. From who? You don't know. You don't know any of these people, you know. Some men also are choosing to ostracize themselves 
Yeah. Consciously. You know, that's what MGTOW yeah. is. What are those guys in the apartment blocks in China or Japan? There's a particular name for Herbivore them. Herbivore man. Her, yeah, them, plant man yeah. or whatever it is. Um, yeah, and, and man, yeah. you know, these are guys that are yeah. consciously choosing to just exit society yeah. in the, the way that we would typically see it. Mm-hmm. What do you think? Do you think that celebrating family values and life is under attack or is it just eroded as a byproduct of modern society or is it a blend well, of both or something different if if we go back to what we were saying about the communists looking at the sturdy structures of our society uh, we can see that it has been a conscious attack by certain people uh, by critical theorists by communists and it has been going on for quite some time but this requires complicity on our part happiness with pleasure and you consider anything that's non-material to be non-valuable then you end up at the place we are at now where it's just about satisfying the dopamine rush in your own brain constant consumption you have to consume on your phone you have to consume food eat the sugar you know take the drugs drink the alcohol whatever it is have have lots of sex you know with with random people who cares you know what difference it make and if that's happiness which I don't agree that it is, I agree, I think that's pleasure, then that's that's a purely materialistic outlook. Uh, whereas happiness, I think, and in previous eras, happiness is defined as something that is not material. It's not physical. I can't give you something that will make you happy, but you'll know you're happy when you feel it, you know, and you'll feel it because it's a state of affairs. You know, you don't, it's not one particular instance where I'll take this pill and then I'll be happy, I'll drink this drink and I'll be, I'll feel, you know, happy. It's something that is, you know, essentially what we call now, I guess, satisfaction. You know, you just think, no, I'm happy. You know, I don't, I, I don't want to change my life. I'm just going to carry on doing the things I habitually do. And I look around myself. I've got my, you know, my, my particular case, I've got my wife, my kids, my business, my job, my, my studies, my, my, my Warhammer, you know, and I'm very happy. I'm very happy. I love everything that I get to do in my life, you know, and I don't. At no point do I begrudge any of it, even when some of it's hard and it's difficult, you know, even when I have to change my one-year-old's nappies or something, I don't ever begrudge it. It's never a chore, you know, uh, and, but no, it's not all pleasurable, you know, but I, it is, it does, it is making me satisfied and it is making me happy. And this is a general sort of state of affairs over time, a continuum that could be broken. I mean, don't get me wrong, you know, if, if, if my family, God forbid, died in a car crash or something, then that would be broken, you know, but it's not something that can just be uh, given to me by a product, right? It's not something that can be given to me by a, a service or a product or, you know, anything like that. It's, it, and it can't just be taken away by a lack of those things, you know? And, and we've completely misunderstood what it is to be a whole and complete, complete and happy human being. And it's going to be very uncool to try and reclaim that. But on the plus side, I don't take any depression pills. I don't get a therapy. You know, I don't have to worry about any of this. I'm never sat around going, God, I wish something would happen so my life wasn't shit. You know, I never think anything like that. I'm always, oh God, I hope nothing happens so it ruins what I've got. You know, I, I'm, you know, and, and then suddenly you realize why I'm now a conservative. <laughs> you know, I've got everything I want. You know, this is why families are innately conservative. Uh, you know, I don't, I don't want to ruin the state of affairs. Young people have been programmed though not just to avoid that state of affairs by the materialistic culture in which we found ourselves. And again, I think you can directly link things like critical theory to this process, uh, but they, they are now en- unenviably in a position where 
and and this is something i get from a lot of young men because like a couple of years ago i was like look this is what you need to do lads you know get yourself a wife get yourself kids get yourself a house get yourself a job get on with it and a lot of them are like yeah okay that's easy for you to say because you're already married you know your wife isn't a gen z zoomer uh, and isn't on OnlyFans. you know like you, this is easy for you to say because you had the pick of women who were not essentially spoiled by the materialistic culture of the of the modern era um but now these guys i mean i wouldn't date a woman who had only fans i wouldn't date a woman who took loads of nude photos of herself and they were all just all over the internet all the time but not all not all women it's a very small percentage of women that do do that i don't know i don't know if it is and i and it's not just that though it's the attitude as well it's the 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 way they view men is not as potential life partners because they have been trained by feminists to say, hey, you can have it all, be the girl boss, you know, sleep around as much as you want. I mean, let's say that they're not all alone fans, sure, but I mean, what are their body counts, you know? Like by the time a woman's 25, it's probably not insignificant at that point. And there are lots of young men who tell me, I, I get messages about this all the time from different areas of the world, but they're just like, look, it's just, there are just no women that I would th think of as suitable partners for marriage and to become a wife and and i'm just like right, okay well that's terrible <laughs> that's just really terrible i don't have a solution i don't have an answer and it's going to be really uncool to say well look young women basically have to use their time at their peak attractiveness to find the man of their dreams and get married and settle down with him you know see him as a human being fall in love with him you know that that's not what's being pushed no in culture no. it's about you know i it's think by by 2030 you're going to have two women for every one man at a four-year u.s college mm -hmm. and again as we said earlier on if you've got that hypergamous nature where women are going to date up and across that means that you have double the number of women competing yeah. for that number of men are you familiar with the sex ratio hypothesis do you know this no it's quite logical when you think about it so um in a local area where you have uh, an abundance of women or an abundance of men relative to the other sex, you see changes in mating patterns. Mm -hmm. So if you have an abundance of men, you see an increase in long-term mating, you see a increase in uh, sexual violence, you see mm -hmm. um, women being more selective, more choosy, and waiting longer to have sex. When the reverse happens and you have a surplus of women and a scarcity of men, you see that women are having sex sooner. There are more casual relationships. There are fewer um, sexual aggressive, aggressive encounters. Um, but what that shows, first off, that's fucking fascinating. And this just happens, right? No one's thinking this through consciously yeah, yes. or very few people are. But this means that human sexuality responds to its local ecology. Yeah. How fucking fascinating is that? The fact that your sexual proclivities will alter just mm. based on what you're sensing. Now, m maybe a tiny little part of it might be conscious, right? And you'll think, oh, well, actually, like, there's a lot of girls here. And that means if I don't maybe sleep with this guy on the third date, then he's maybe going to forget about me because I know that there's other girls that are around here or whatever. Mm. But obviously, the implication of this is that in colleges where you are having an ever-increasing number of women and ever-decreasing number of men, you have women that are no longer able to get the sort of relationship that they want. Mm. And not only that as well, when they leave, they will, and I can't think of a more delicate way of putting this, uh, they will have effect effectively debased their own purity as well. And this is, this is something that women have to understand that men really care about. Men do not want a woman who has run through by the time she leaves university. That is not what they're looking for. That is not someone they're going to make their wife 
They want they want preciousness, exclusivity and specialness. They want to think that they are essentially conquering an undiscovered country with their wife. You know, they want it to be all of theirs and none of anyone else's. They want this this and and this creates a kind of magical state of affairs in the mind of the man. Uh, and you have to, if you are a smart woman and you want to get the guy of your dreams, you will essentially um, maintain your purity as as best you can. And again, it's the sort of thing, well, hang on a second, this sounds very much like what my conservative Christian grandfather would have said. It's like, yeah, and he had that tradition for a reason. You know, that was true then, it's true now, and you're unmarried, approaching 40 and on depression medication as you go and see your fucking therapist, all right? You know, they, your grandmother didn't have this problem. She wasn't a hoe when she was young. She got married to your grandfather when they were like 22, and they're still married now, you know? But again, with this, like, to, to try and sing the song of sympathy for women, it's not like, it's not, I don't think up until really... Now, anyone's been warning women about this. You know, sexual revolution wasn't too long ago, birth control. Yeah, yeah, but I mean, who's stepping in and saying, darling, are you bringing another boy home? Um, No one's stepping in like that. Yeah, maybe. should be on patrol, you know. This is is Uh, not good. But you are right. And I I, I agree with you. You There has been a, a, a total, total dropping of the ball when it comes to understanding the nature of reality of the relationships between the sexes. Even even the Pope is telling people that they need to have more kids. Did you see that? Yeah, he's right. Having pets is selfish. Why? Because your pet will not look after you or someone else. And this is, so this is another thing I was, I was thinking about a lot, right? So I was thinking, look, I think we actually do have a moral obligation to have children because we are expecting there to be people around to do the things that we want done. As in, you're like, yeah, well, I'm going to get my my retirement money. Okay, but someone's going to have to pay for that, you know. So you're going to have to have a body working to pay for the retirement money you've got. Okay, well, I, I don't need kids. I'm just going to go to a retirement home. Okay, and who's going to run that home? You're Other people's kids. Someone, exactly, other people's kids. You're expecting someone else to have done the work, to have engaged in the labor, to have raised a person to you to then sort of like in you know, parasitically sort of like, yeah, well, I've got money. Here's this money come and do so. But I mean, is that going to be enough for them to be like, yeah, but I'd rather look after my own mum, even if I don't get your money, you know, cause I mean, I would like to think that, you know, when I'm old and infirm, my kids would rather look after me because I love them and took care of them and raised them well, uh, rather than going off to some, because they fucking life. owe you Carl. That's why, because you owe me. But because we there's a there's a there's a thick relationship there. This this concept that's not just the materialistic about thing about money. There's love there, you know. There's a desire to make sure that the person who looked after them when they were young is looked after when they're older. And I'll do that for my parents. You know, God God forbid they ever need that. You know, my parents are actually still quite healthy and active, so that's good. But like, you know, when when the time comes, I'll do the right thing. And my hopefully my kids will do the right thing. And the the selfish cat mother who now is expecting my kids to be, to be able to pay them to work for them. Well, let's hope that they're willing or else you are just going to be there in your own unchanged shit, you know, where you can't move and no one, no one has any obligations to you. That's the thing. It's about bonds of obligation and they they are selfishly expecting other people to have obligations to them. It's like, sorry, no one does. No one needs to look after you. And you're again, just, the Pope is right. You're being very selfish, saying, "Well, it's a, I'm, it's a lot of work to raise kids." Yeah, it's a lot of work, but it's also really, really rewarding, and it rounds you out as a human being. 
Like you learn things from being a parent that you can't learn from being a pet owner, you know, and you're, you're, you're essentially absconding your position in the great chain of civilization. You know, if you like every individual is the, the result of a lineage that goes back like a billion years, you know, to the very, very first organisms to you. And you're like, yeah, so I don't need to carry on that chain. I can just ah, abolish all of that. Ah, I'm just going to live off other people's effort and energy. It's like, you selfish shit. What makes you think you have the right to just be like, yeah, pff, I don't need to do anything about upholding this civilization by producing future generations for it. I'm the sort of person who's going to get myself sterilized. And I'm going to sit there and drink my wine and live off the fruits of this, like some sort of conqueror. It's like, no. And this, this is a totally unsustainable attitude. It's not going to last. You're going to be miserable and you're a really selfish piece of shit. I don't know if it's a moral obligation, but I definitely think that it's an optimal way for society to move forward ah, okay let me let me stop you there right i don't give a fuck about what's optimal <laughs> like, you know it is a moral obligation because all their life they relied on the that other people had done and if they think that they can just inherit all of this and say i'm just going to take 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 then that makes them selfish which is a moral judgment it is a moral obligation interesting I've been thinking about this a lot. <laughs> I can tell. Yeah, I can tell. Is this what keeps you there's awake at night? Wrong with us. There's, there's nothing wrong with it. It does. There's nothing wrong with us asserting these sorts of deep concepts that we have naturally in our language. You know, things like betrayal, deception, selfishness. You know, we don't have to just go for the sort of thin scientific term that's like, well, is it optimal? Is it, yeah, you yeah. know, is it, it, I don't care. That's, you that's know? really interesting. Like talking in what almost sounds not medieval, but certainly more grand terms, well, more it's relational language, yeah. right? Every, 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 you know, when you, when you say you're selfish, you're saying there are two people involved and there's a relationship between them. And that should have been a certain way, but it has been betrayed Dude, or undermined I, or something like that. I've just realized that I don't, I don't see that sort of language used pretty much at all mm. on the internet. I very mm. rarely talk about betrayal uh, in obligation belonging you know none of this stuff and i wonder I, i've noticed this trend on twitter that let's say that it's dunk it's just a dunk fest right everyone's just trying to get one over on somebody else yeah. whenever someone says something let's say that there's a conflict back and forth between two people whenever someone says something about the other person the the in vogue thing to do is to come up with some dry witty quote mm. tweet response yeah, it's never, and even the people that are in the comments below that are trying to defend the person that the other person's just taking the piss out of, yeah. it's very rarely saying this is out of order, this is beyond the pale, this is too much. It's always trying to play some sort of lexical game to make the original tweet look bad. Very rarely do people go out of their way to say, "Look, this is this is too much. What you've said is yeah. deplorable. It's betrayal. It's etc. Cetera, etc." Cetera. It's the Hobbesian state of man against man. What, it's, it's you're going to have to explain all. that to me. What's this? Right. So uh, Hobbes was uh, Thomas Hobbes. I think he is. I think it's Thomas. Uh, was um, a very early Enlightenment philosopher. who was like, look, man in the state of nature, his life was nasty, brutish, and short. And for some reason, the early Enlightenment thinkers all thought that like human beings were like atomized individuals running around the woods. Uh, and then you had some who were like, well, they were constantly at war with each other, and some that said, well, they never talked to each other, uh, and and you know various other uh, conceptions of it. 
And then the idea is that, well, they would come together to form a society from this atomized state of nature. Now, that never existed, obviously. Uh, it's it's at best a thought experiment and at worst fucking ludicrous. Um, but it underpins all of the thought that dominates our world today. You know, the way that we, you know, the classical liberalism, the progressivism, the communism, all of it is underpinned by this idea that that's what we used to be like. And that was never true. We always used to live in tribes like chimps do now, you know, and there, there were deep relationships between these, you know, the members of the tribes. And that's always been the way it's been from before we were humans. Archaeology bears this out. Um, but the but the point is that you had the you had two conceptions, right? You had the French conception from Rousseau, in which that, oh, well, you know, of course, man just felt pity for his fellow man. And so, you know, if ever he saw another man in the woods who was hurt, he would just feel bad about it. Unlikely, given the way that we can see the world is. Or you had Hobbes's view, which was man was brutish and evil and savage, and he would just rapaciously take what he could and then get away with whatever was possible. And civilization makes us better than our animal selves, our, our primitive selves. Whereas from the French view, that's the English view. The French view is civilization makes us worse than our primitive selves. Our primitive selves don't, don't do bad things. And uh, the Twitter appears that to, to bear out the Hobbesian, uh, the Hobbesian point, as in no one on Twitter really has any relation to one another. You just set up your account and suddenly you're in the woods on Twitter in this state of nature where it's all against all and everyone's dunking on each other constantly and no one cares about anyone else because no one's got any obligation to anyone else on twitter none no 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 understanding that like for example i have an obligation to my neighbor you know everyone knows they have an obligation to their neighbor not to uh play their music really loud late at night not i mean there might be a law against it but even if there wasn't law against it you'd be like oh, i'm not gonna do that because that'd be rude right they live next to me therefore we have a relationship as neighbors even though neither of us chose this relationship and we could break it by simply moving and that doesn't even need to mean much you know but there's still that station in life that is a neighbor and you've got an obligation to a neighbor and you know this this is just you know something you inherit in the culture that you live in and grow up in with intuitively but that doesn't exist on twitter and so it's just an evil, savage thing of people just dunk, dunk, dunk. And then the, the, the dunks are just a replacement for fist fights. You know, mm -hmm. That's what they are. Uh, and that you get the same emotional response from doing that as you do from actually fighting. Um, and so this, it, it's this awful, awful place. But nobody has any obligation to anyone else because no one views themselves as part of the same community. And it's only in the sort of in and you've got like the factions that are formed on Twitter, you know, uh, like X Twitter is, you know, whatever feminist Twitter or whatever. And that's where you get the feelings of betrayal, where it's an in group. Uh, and this is what we have failed to really understand, I think. It's we the the relational language is what mean it, it's baked into our our language and it describes the things that are truly worthy and this is what all drama comes from you know betrayal you know revenge all of these sort of you know very deep thick emotional concepts are what dramas are based on this is just what east enders is you know on a constant rolling basis of oh you know someone lied to that and stole from that and hurt that but it's it, all of these you know and you can go back anywhere, you know, Shakespeare, you go back to ancient tragedies. These are all what these things are about. And it's all about the relationships of man with other men or women and whatnot. What do you think the future of mainstream media looks like? Because I'm, I'm pretty Bleak. trusting. Well, I'm, I'm pretty trusting usually of the people in power. And like I say, I'm not usually. Really? I am, dude. I, oh, two years ago, I was. Right? Two years ago, I was. I like that. Well, I, I was. <laughs> yeah. Man, the last two years has 
completely eroded and like, annihilated any sense of trust that I have, not only in mainstream media, but also in institutions and the powers that be. Like, it's just a, a, a really lethal cocktail of neglect, malice, and incompetence, like, all sort of swirled together. But is there still a swath of people that have faith in these mainstream media? And is it the older generation that pretty soon are going to, you know, within a couple of decades are maybe not going to be there anymore and we're now going to have no institutions, no uh, media, that, that mainstream media that the people that are coming through are prepared to trust? It seems to me there's the older generation that is more sceptical of the institutions at the moment, uh, the sort of radicalised boomers who are voting for Brexit and Trump, who are just like, you know what, no, this is fucked. I don't like this. We're getting out. You know, eject. Um, and that that seems to me that the... the and they, they, and God bless, they're the ones who did the right thing. The problem I have are the Zoomers and the Millennials who don't know any different and don't have any framework for legitimacy outside of the power of the state and the institution. Uh, the, this is this is the worst thing about um, intersectionality and what it's done, having proliferated through our schools and through our cultures and through our institutions. It is, well, I don't think I'm not sure what we could say it's proliferated through the schools yet. You know? Oh, has, absolutely has. I mean, my, has it my, got to the my, stage where the oh yeah, I, I've these people are adults have, now. I've I've had to have these conversations with my 11 year old daughter where she's come home and been like, I think I'm bi. It's like, what? Oh, well, I'm really worried. You know, I'm part of the LGBT community. I'm really worried about transphobia. She's 11. You know, they, they, it's it's everywhere. It is everywhere. And this is not something that we can take lightly because one problem that we have is that the entire thing is based on the worship of power. The, you can't define anything without power. Like racism is power plus privilege, you know, blah, 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 blah. Power is a component of everything that they conceive of. And if you are expressly critiquing power relations and saying if there is a power imbalance then there is oppression and therefore this is illegitimate then you have made illegitimate the relationship between mothers and daughters fathers and sons you know between teachers and students between the prime minister or the president and the population you know if all of these become illegitimate then why would i uphold any of them you know it's all about the and and the, and if the only legitimating factor is the raw exercise of power, and if that's literally, again, we've flattened it down to just the material, so there's not, it's not that we've got obligation to these people and they have obligations to us, which is how it used to be in like the feudal view of the world, as in the king had an obligation to his subjects. You can go, go, go read like Robin Hood poems and stuff like this. The, the problem with King John is not any one thing, but it's the fact that his interests and his obligations are not being met as the king and this is like robin hood is a deeply reactionary story like he's not a revolutionary he's not a socialist what he's saying is the king is not obligated he's not up upholding his obligations to the peasants in uh in a in a loving way he's not acting like their father you know and so the, the, it, if we've if we've annihilated all of that and reduced it down to purely the material exercise of power then great okay now what legitimizes anything well it's strength you know, that's it. And if generations are coming up who don't understand that there are moral factors outside of the pure exercise of power, then all they'll consider to be true is strength, power. That's the very beating heart of fascism. That's what the fascists believe, that the state is a god that creates 
the civilization under it and imbues the civilization with its rights. And so, in fact, this is a great point I wanted to bring up with you. Like, what's a human right? Define a human right. Where do they come from? What are they anchored in? Right. And it seems fucking nothing. And you can tell this by people like Jeremy Corbyn, who are like, broadband is a human right. What does that fucking mean? Did he say that? Yes. Yes, Jeremy Corbyn, <laughs> quote, broadband is a human right. What does that mean? What does it fucking mean? Food, water, shelter, healthcare, none of these things are human rights. You're missing rights. broadband and off the bottom of Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Absolutely. It's the very basic need. You know, if Below shelter and food and water, broadband. I mean, that, what, are, what are you going to do without it, right? But seriously, he said this, and it's just like, okay, what the fuck are you talking about when you say human right? You know, it seems to be whatever's in the front of his mind at the time is a human right. And it's the same with Bernie Sanders and any of these communists, because essentially they take the same position. That, so, look, human rights are constructed by the power structures. They are whatever the people in charge say they are. Therefore, put the socialist in charge and he will say that housing and food and water and broadband is all human rights. And you'll be given all of these things by the state like the state was fucking God. And it's like, OK, I don't really believe in human rights as this conception of it uh there there are other views on rights but they aren't you know like this uh you know i, I believe in negative rights where they're in, imbued in us by nature because i'm not religious and i don't think it was god but uh but this is a different conversation we're in a different paradigm now and all of these young people have been brought up to believe that healthcare can be a human right that food can be a human right that shelter can be a human right so there is no moral there, there is no intellectual legitimacy you know it means nothing human rights are whatever we say they are and that means essentially the party is always right that's the problem and this is deeply concerning i don't think there's any hope for liberty while we allow these people to control the discourse and the thing is, i don't even know how we can go start invalidating almost everything that was done under these auspices like the healthcare is a human right it's not end of conversation it is an entitlement I learned this really interesting insight about ideological beliefs recently, talking about mm -hmm. ideologies. So the usefulness of an absurd ideological belief is a form of tribal signaling. It signals that the ideology is more important to the person than reason itself. It's a display of loyalty mm -hmm. to your allies and a threat display to your enemies. It's not about what's true. It's about how does this make me look to my tribal in-group and out-group. So it's the commodification of beliefs as well. And one of the things that I thought that was really interesting there is it, it becomes almost like a badge of honor sometimes to hold increasingly extreme and absurd beliefs. And this happens on both sides. I don't think that this is in any way unique to one side or another. And um, yeah, I just thought that that was really interesting that you wear your beliefs, uh, ideas. It's that about, yeah, well, no, no, you're, you're absolutely right. Because if you think about it, like they're holding to a, a set of, uh, again, this this lattice of ideas, but that doesn't, what's that got to do with the world? Like that's not reality. That's a set of ideas that they've put together and said, right, this is important. And now the closer I adhere to these ideas, the more morally correct I am, the more politically correct I am. But reality is, has been left far behind here. Reality might not reflect these ideas at all. Uh, and so you get absolute lunatic takes that have got nothing to do with the real world being lauded on places like Twitter as being perfect as being good as being the 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 height of prestige and the thing is what has this person done i've claimed a really extreme position that you know fits in with this lattice of ideas okay 
how much effort was that? You know, how, how, how much sweat and tears and toil was it for you to achieve this moral virtue that is saying something really extreme? You know, you didn't build a house. You didn't climb a mountain. You didn't raise a child. You didn't construct a building. You, you said something on the Internet. You know, it's amazing that that gives people cred. So roll, roll it forward for me. Mainstream media. What do you think the future has in store? Oh, um, oh God, the, main, the, the, the problem they have is people like Joe Rogan, <laughs> who are wildly popular. I, I learned the other day that Joe Rogan's audience is about 24 years old on average, uh, which is not good for them, but it is good for everyone else because Joe Rogan is a decent human being and he is a human being for a start. You know, he's not just a liar. Um, it's not good. It's especially not good for left-wing media. I mean, you get people like uh, Tucker Carlson and you know, Fox News is the, the the majority of the old mainstream media at this point. Uh, it's pretty much the only game on the right by, as well. By plays, oh, yeah, by by view count, yeah, um, you, like by by people tuning into their shows. But they're they're bound to be an older audience. You know, Joe's is quite a young audience. But um, no, it's not good. And the thing is, I, I, I you don't want to make like hard and fast predictions. But we're, we're seeing just a constant decline in viewership. I mean, CNN, apparently, after Trump left, it wasn't the stat that was going around like they'd lost 90% of their audience. Or I something. don't know. And it's, oh, I, I, I saw one that was 40 and one was 90. So we'll go for the 90 because it sounds more extreme. Uh, no, I, but they've, they've lost a huge chunk of their audience. And it's because what, who are they serving? You know, who are they serving? They're, they're not serving the actual interests and needs of the people who they want to watch. Whereas someone like Joe Rogan is, you know, someone like you are, someone like me are, you know, we're, we're talking about things that might help those people rather than trying to enforce an institutional gated narrative where it's like, look, the powers that be want you to believe this thing, believe it. What's my investment? You know, why would I care? Why would I want to watch it? And I don't think they know that that's what they're doing. And I don't think they know how to escape this paradigm they don't serve anyone other than the institutions themselves. And so the people who are deeply invested in left-wing politics and the preservation of the institutions will watch them and support them. But everyone else who's just getting on with their lives is just not going to bother. And so I don't know what else we can really do other than enjoy the ride as they continue to fail. Uh, but, you know, I don't, I don't think they can maintain themselves indefinitely on this trajectory. Carl Benjamin, ladies okay. and gentlemen. Thank you for coming on, mate. I always appreciate it. I'm really, really happy for Anytime, how everything's going with Lotus Eaters. People want to check out what it is that you do. Where should they go? Uh, they can search for the podcast of Lotus Eaters on YouTube or just go to lotuseaters.com on the internet. Sweet. We made it, man. Thanks, man. <laughs>